Hey Airheads, welcome back to 98.3 The Sandbox. I'm here with Josh H. And you're in your car, but it's not radio on PODcast. Stick around for more Adam Sandler hits. Thank you so much for being my friends. Hey, are we into the sandbox right now? Hey, Josh, you're in the sandbox right oh, now. Oh, heck, I'm going to need to empty out my shoes before I go in the house. Uh, welcome to Into the Sandbox. Uh, this is a monthly podcast where I explore Adam Sandler movies with a new guest every month with that guest movie of choice. And this month for March, I'm here with Josh. Hello, Josie. Hello, listeners. Would you like to introduce yourself, Josh? Sure. My name's Josh H. Because I'm strictly anonymous and you don't know who I am and you can't Find me. I am a human who was the right age to watch the movie we're going to talk about right now, um, which means I was 12 years old when this movie came out, and I'm a uh, comedy fan and a movie fan, and I'm also the co-host of another great podcast, uh, which listeners of Into the Sandbox should consider subscribing to, called The Click click and i think my pronunciation did enough i am not going to spell it for you where we discuss some related topics there is a link in the show description i don't think i ever do show notes Um, but there's a link somewhere if you click enough yeah to the other podcast so yeah josh it's good to have you and to talk about a different adam sandler movie with you oh yeah although it's gonna be hard not to To a little bit talk about you know, this is kind of where we started, and on some level, in our hearts, it's where we're, where we're going is click. Yeah. Yeah. This is the clickiverse, the sandbox. This is the sandbox. This yeah. is the sandbox. Even though you would have been the right age when this movie came out, is this a rewatch for you, Josh? Oh, absolutely. I watched this movie in the theater when I was a little kid. Did you watch it a lot growing up, or just like no. a... Okay. We didn't have like a VCR. Okay. It was a long time ago. <laughs> So I watched this movie in the theater, and I remembered it. What is this movie, by the way? I don't think we've announced it. Oh, this movie is 1994's Airheads. This is Airheads, 1994, is rated PG-13. Um, in the IMDb, I guess that's true tags. The tags are comedy, crime, and music. That, <laughs> All I, true. I want to talk about that. All true. Yeah. And just your quick synopsis is three band members hoping for a big break head to a radio station to play their demo tape and wind up holding everyone hostage with plastic guns when the head DJ refuses to play them. And I would like to, at the top, state that we have our three, this is a trio of our main casts because we might use the actor names and the character names interchangeably. Mm-hmm. We have... Brendan Fraser as Chaz. Right, and I believe that the man's name is Brendan Fraser. Brendan Fraser. That's my understanding. We have Brendan Fraser as Chaz. 
Steve Buscemi was Rex, and Adam Sandler was Pip. Mm-hmm. Does he have the pool cleaning company named after him? That's then? right, Pip okay. Pool Cleaning. I didn't piece it together till much later in the movie, because they oh, didn't yeah. really say their names a whole lot. They didn't say their names a whole lot, and I think they only mentioned that they're brothers once. Correct. And I did catch that, at least. I, I want to talk about what genre this movie is. Because yeah. in my memory, this was a comedy. And I think watching it again, although I laughed a couple times, and I think I laughed more when I was a kid, because it was like, you know, the right time and um, everything's new. This isn't strictly a comedy. No. I feel like it's more like a rock and roll, like, romp than a straight comedy. Yeah. Like, it's not like an anchorman or a click where there's several jokes throughout that are not as severe i don't don't know how to quite put it but yeah it's like comical situations that are played straight perhaps it's more drama yeah Uh, yeah. i feel like they they leaned more on telling the story of three unsuccessful rock and rollers trying to take over a radio station more than they tried to make create a skeleton to put jokes on i can appreciate that for what it is, although I'll save some other thoughts later for the movie as a whole. Well, I'm kind of excited for the moment that I think happens in this podcast, where I find out in a binary sense what you think about the movie, and you find out in a binary sense what I think of the movie. And so yeah. I'm wondering if that will happen soon. I was I was kind of expecting that. I think that's that. where we're at now, before we get into it. So we're going to do a quick draw review segment where at the count of three josh you're gonna we're both at the same time going to either give this movie as a whole a thumbs up or a thumbs down so three two one yeah if i were to be honest this is very middle of the road like this didn't jump out but there was nothing that i hated about this movie that i couldn't feel like giving it a thumbs down but i will say and maybe this is a telling of your notes there's not a whole lot to really there's not a substance to this movie it's pretty forgettable i think this movie is not that successful but there's interesting stuff in it which makes it a situational recommendation so it's not like i think everybody should go out and watch this but i think it's like if you grew up in a time where like fm rock radio was like a concept in your youth and you like these performers there's so many great performers in this movie yeah um and you um i'm sure we're gonna talk a lot about it and you like the idea of there being kind of like a parody of a heist movie with a parody of die hard in it yeah um like there's a bunch of interesting stuff it almost feels like this movie should have been like a dark comedy and it didn't go dark it's kind of too broad to really get the it like didn't really deal with like the cynical thing that could there's like a there's like a shadow version of this movie that's very easy for me to imagine for as high stakes as some of these situations where they made sure that no one was ever doing anything too bad at any given point right I, i think given the attitudes of the time these guys were seen as like unlikely kind of like heroes and it kind of some things are pretty ridiculous um with modern eyes 
But I, I think if you translate the way it was intended, it's like, oh, we're supposed to like like these guys. And I think as characters, they are kind of likable, but the actual actions of the film are pretty stupid. So let's get into it. Let's let's talk about that more. I really like the opening credit sequence. I don't know if you remember, before the movie even starts. Can we, um, before we even talk about the movie, can we talk about the fact that you cannot find this movie anywhere? Yes. No streaming services have this movie available. You cannot even like, In the purchase US. it for rent, you know, like on demand. I was 100%, like I think on our other podcast we talked about, I bought the movie Click like five times now. Yeah. I was 100% prepared to pay for this movie, could not find it anywhere. What I had to do was you're saying we could have bought a physical copy i didn't that's not yeah we're in the same boat we'd have the same time also my dvd players messed up and i would have to buy a player as well yeah we couldn't find it anywhere reasonable and i had to go to the pirate bay and download it as a torrent which was after finding the weird youtube versions and trying to deal with those which were a mess um and the the version we watched is from like mojo.com which had presented in up. 1080i <laughs> yeah it had the bug from like the mojo website on it and yeah. that's where the whatever kind internet stranger stole it for us i think yeah they did like a screen recording of something mm-hmm. because only once did we ever get like a pop-up banner that was like you're watching airheads on mojo live or something yeah. like that so weird and and i guess it's okay because this isn't like a movie that everybody needs to watch but it was just so weird that we couldn't find it anywhere it's speaking to the larger thing of you have to preserve and have your media because you're at the mercy of any company just yoinking it and it never being accessible again okay which maybe is on track for this movie theme a little bit there is sure. one demo tape that if it's gone they don't <laughs> yeah well, maybe some other stuff um, it's who controls who controls the media who is the man yeah but now we can talk about the really good opening credit sequence that i liked yeah um it probably was the best part of the movie maybe oh wow okay which doesn't mean but it was it was a great credit sequence uh it was like we get a bunch of like stop motion sometimes it's like very very fast stop motion uh-huh. um but you know of like very snuggle leather jacket zipping up and down or like other music stuff that happened stringing a guitar record spinning yeah there was like a diner scene which made me think it was going to be like about like a touring band which is not the case but just like i guess everybody eats at a diner um but yeah it was high energy it was very visual very punk visually style like that set you up for the tone of the movie i thought it was a lot of fun as well i feel like and i know a lot of my memories of being 12 are constructive memories and they're not really real they're just me telling stories about what i think would have happened to myself but I think I remember thinking that, like, this movie was really cool. Yeah. Like, that this movie was, like, real rock and roll. And, like, I, I was like, I want to be a rocker, like, in the movie. Aww. <laughs> After the awesome credit sequence with mm-hmm. the movie starts, I wrote down the wrong actor at first for the opening because... You wrote down Kelsey Brent- Grammer because you thought it was Frasier? I, you know I'm not good with that. I've never seen The Mummy. I haven't either, to be honest. But I originally wrote down uh, that it was Adam Sandler on a motorcycle in the opening scene until we finally get like a good... Because we also didn't see a good face for a while. Because mm-hmm. it's always like the back and it's uh, Brendan Frazier. 
Am I saying that? Now I'm I think thinking it's, about it I too think hard. it's Fraser, but I, I think a, most people say Fraser. Fraser. I also I'm just going to call up, him Brendan. Just to be crazy. Is you're it Brendan or Brandon? Brendan. Brendan. You're going to cut all this out, but Steve Buscemi, Buscemi says his name is Steve Buscemi. And I Does tried he... for a long time saying Steve Buscemi because I knew that. Everybody was like, it's Buscemi. So I gave up on that one. Yeah. But I still hold down that the man's name is Fraser. Okay. Well, I'm going to call him just Brendan for this. Brendan. <laughs> Let's go, Perfect. Brendan. Perfecto. But it's really Brendan uh, sneaking into the studio. And why it was hard to discern who it was for a while is because throughout the duration of the movie, he has this blonde, lawn, wavy wig. Great hair. Must yeah, be Yeah, it's great. Right? But yeah. it was it concealed his identity for a while on who of our main trio it was. So now, for a while, it just seemed because of the antics, I assumed it was Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler, to me, seemed like the most likely to wear a wig. The antics that you're talking about, are they like the microcosm heist for the macrocosm heist that's going to take up the majority of the movie? Because he sneaks into that uh, that's, record exec? That's how I assumed it was. They're setting the tone of they already have these behaviors which are supposed to be innocent of like, we just want to get our music heard and we're ignoring minor laws to get to it. So you can see how... It wasn't a big deal for them later to break into a radio station because he breaks into record studios. Right. It's like at the very beginning we see this is a guy who's willing to do anything to get his music heard. And in this movie, we're going to see the day he takes it too far. Correct. That's that's how I assume they're setting the tone of he does this on the regular. People know, you know, like he has the skills to do this. He knows how to do this. And we get to find out what he's up against. The, the record company exec who won't even hear him out yeah. no matter how well they're doing in the battle of the bands no yeah. matter how much money they spent on their demo tape that it's just it's all about that like industry thing that they just can't break through yeah Bef- yeah so even before we get that so we also get brendan cutting through the lobby and was also a precedent for later this movie as how incompetent any sort of security or authority figure is in this movie because he walks into the uh, recording studio office or where we call it a record company uh-huh. studio and just guns it past like the security check-in gets on an elevator the little Paul Blart cop, you know, comes running after him. Doesn't even attempt to stop the elevator. He just so easily is able to get past. He very, you know, there was a couple seconds where he really could have stopped the elevator if he wanted to. He did not want to. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I think this is pretty low stakes. He's more of a nuisance than anything. Right. Um, And I could see not wanting to, like, full, like, tackle somebody who's, like, just hustling. And just to set the tone also, there will have to be a lot of suspension of disbelief for this movie. Uh, oh, absolutely. Especially in regards to security, police, or anything like that, and what they're capable of. Right. Because they're, yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically all the authority figures become kind of like uh, like stage dressing. Yeah. Um, they're kind of like just there to provide the environment necessary to tell the story they, they mostly are just totally ineffective. Like you said, he sneaks his way up to the executives. He just finds one of them walking in the hallway, tries to hand them his demo tape, and he won't even take it because it's solicitation. He doesn't take solicitation. If he needs to work through the system, 
mm-hmm. um, if he if he wants to be heard. Because if he, if he was any good, he would have already risen to the top. Which seems to be another theme too of like if it was so if you're so good, we would already be listening to you. But we also won't give new people a shot. Um, so that is theme introduced early. So think, he gets uh, kicked uh, out, and uh-huh. uh, so we see him with his girlfriend. Yep, his girlfriend Kayla. Um, and their relationship not great. I think it's supposed to be more uh, charming than it is because I think we're supposed to be like rooting for the two of them until like I was not deep rooting in the for movie. Th- even at the end movie, I was not rooting for them. <laughs> but to be honest, right? But I, I think that's what we were supposed to see. Um, and I think they kind of a little bit balance the teeter totter. By like, okay, so Brendan Fraser's character, Chaz, is like a really bad boyfriend. Um, he's not pulling his weight. And he's not even like recognizing what, uh, did you say her name was Kayla? Kayla. Kayla is doing for him in his career and how that's like a show of like faith. Um, he, he's like basically really crummy about it. Um, and so I can't tell if this is just supposed to be funny or if this is supposed to justify that fact. She's incredibly violent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, she was right to kick him out, but she, like, was is, throwing, like, throwing stuff. punches, kicks, throwing objects she at him. She threw the whole, like, bucket of makeup on him after he dumped it in the toilet or something. They're not nice to each other. They're not nice to each other. And thankfully, I, I, I mean, I guess, just she is physically violent. But even that, I was like, oh, no, this is... This is toxic and terrible. Yeah, it was a very <laughs> toxic relationship. And their whole, the whole just gist, right, was that they want to live their rock and roll lifestyle. Neither of them wants to work. But Kayla's frustrated that she's stuck working a nine to five office type job where she's smiling self alphabetically for hours while he's sitting around doing nothing, shirtless on the couch, breaking into offices. Um, but she wants that lifestyle, and so she's waiting for him to get the band's traction so that she can stop working. Um, but then he's turned around being like, well, you need to support us until I can do that. It just, it's not a healthy relationship. <laughs> also, even their like, weird thing that they go back and forth about um, whether or not he wrote the song for her or wrote yeah. it before, it almost seems like they're negotiating the reality for that moment in a way that's just like, just weird. <laughs> yeah. The, the song that they're trying to make a hit, he says that he wrote it for her, and then she brings up the fact that he wrote it before he met her. And then that comes up later. Or the, the, the script flips, where then she's like, it's my song about me. And then he's like, I wrote it before I knew you. Right. Just weird. Yeah. They have a strange relationship. Maybe- From a screenwriting perspective, probably they're like, these guys can't have a rich history that we go through and see them argue because they don't have enough screen time together. So we're just going to pick a thing that is thematic. But if you watch it at face value, it really seems like they're, they have a different story. They tell themselves about their relationship when they're together than when they're apart. And they use that story to like hinge each other. Yeah. The trope that they really are is the couple that always is fighting and is always breaking up and getting back together again. They're like a rock that's, and roll couple. They're a rock and roll couple. She also had awesome hair. Yeah. I mean, and Brendan Fraser's a total babe in this movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be honest. All three of our stars were babes in this movie. Yeah. I uh, think... I'm going to jump next... ahead. Adam Sandler gets 
basically naked. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, well, first, there's one stop on the way. We we go see Steve Buscemi at a toy store where he's working. He's stocking the shelves. Because he, he says, the, the, the whole reason why we've been there is that uh, Brendan has been kicked out of the apartment. Kayla, they're broken up. He mm-hmm. had to get kicked out of the apartment. So now he's going to go look to go move in with his bandmates. Probably right. for whatever at the time. But then as we leave the toy store, we're getting in the van, the pool cleaning van, which belongs to Pip, who is Adam Sandler, who is wearing a crop top. Yeah. And it was great. Uh, Letterbox was all over that. Tons of reviews about Adam Sandler in a crop top. And uh, Steve Buscemi, who famously is like a kind of, not like an ugly guy, but like a weird looking guy, kind of bug guy. Distinct. Distinct he, uh, uh, he looks great. When the lighting doesn't make his deep-set eyes look too deep, he looks great. And I googled it. That's his hair, but with extensions. Okay. So he really he really did grow out long, long hair for Good his for rock and roller role. So they're all living together now. For a minute, I thought they were living in the van. <laughs> uh, I thought that was funny, like three grown men living in one van together. But there's another shitty apartment somewhere that we never see again. Uh, one of... Th- so when I remember this movie and then watch it, you have know, like your memory of the movie mm-hmm. that like has to go up to the reality of what mm-hmm. is actually on the BitTorrent that you download from the Pirate Bay. Um, I was amazed by, we're really spending our time on the beginning of this movie, but basically everything that happens before they get into the heist, it's like less than 10 minutes. Yeah. It's very short before we're in the heist. We basically spend our whole time in... The, the heist in the um, radio station. I do have a note where it's like the. I realized thirty minutes in, like it, this is a ninety-minute movie. Thirty minutes in, I realized like the heist was happening. I'm like, oh, we're here. I don't know what could happen for another hour because it's the heist has already happened. Absolutely. Um, but sure enough, it continues on. But yeah, the begin. There's not a whole lot of setup to this. It's really just they break into places. They're getting back together as a band. They're also calling of like. The other stuff that's set up in the beginning is whether who's all committed to being the band, you know, who's putting in the work to making sure that they get records. And it's funny that the throughout the, the whole thing up until the very end, it's always about like records and studios and never like live performances. Well, I think they're already doing the live performances and it, they're oh, thinking they? that, uh, well, because when they, when they go see that band, um, oh, it has some stupid name like wings of forever or something they're like we beat these guys in the battle of the bands last month but they got the record contract so they're doing this gig and they're getting played on the radio like we are doing the thing we are the cooler band who rocks harder and plays the shows but we don't have the connection and it's always Mm, that that's the the one thing everything but that thing they have the other thing before we get to the heist because once we're in the heist we're in the heist um we also set the scene of they uh have these toy guns like plastic guns but they look very real which is why they were recalled which is why they had a bunch sitting around in the brother's Mm -hmm. apartment and they filled them up with hot sauce as like home defense like if a robber i don't think it was home defense i think it was when they like run into well um, they use them later for sure but they did say like if anyone breaks in here oh maybe this is the robber is going to get and they read a little doll that they squirt hot sauce on he did say like if someone would ever break in okay 
But I thought I, it they also made like for, a, they had to have them on them at all times too. I, I thought there was like a, a they like set the stage for like an anti elitism thing where like if any of these like Hollywood stuck up people give me any lip while I'm like being a cool rock and roll dude, I'm gonna spray them with this hot sauce to put them right in their place. I think if that was that could be true. I have in my notes that they used it for robbers. But my one, I'm going to fight you on this a little bit, though. Because if that was true, they would have done that early in the beginning of the heist, and they didn't. They pretended like they were real guns. So if that was the plan, this movie would have played out very differently. Well, I hope I have final edit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I actually thought putting hot sauce on a squirt gun, regardless of, you know, anything that happens past the movie, like, that's pretty cool and smart. I loved that. Um, the other thing is, right, we go to that music club concert mm-hmm. pit, whatever. Um, not a whole lot happens there besides, right, they're getting jealous of other bands, blah, blah, we blah. We introduce the uh, Joe Montana's uh, DJ character, something, the shark. Oh, Ian the shark. Yeah, and we see how he's kind of like disillusioned we... with the, like he's part of the system, but he's disillusioned with the system. Right. I think, do we, I never caught his real name in my notes. He's Hemorrhoid Man, if you know who I'm talking about. Uh, Michael Richards' character? Potentially. He's he's our diehard leader. Yeah, that's Michael Richards. Okay. Uh, Kramer from Seinfeld is what most people know him okay. from. Oh, that's him. Also, okay. well, people know him from another thing, okay. but I don't think it's pertinent to this okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> podcast. Um, I don't remember. I didn't write it down because this would have been before we really knew he how we played a key role later. But there was a man that was drinking beer and Pepto-Bismol together. Did you see this? No. He both was pouring the beer. He had a full container. Oh, wasn't that Joe Montana's character? I do remember that now. And I don't know because I'm like, it would make sense if later if this was the guy with hemorrhoids. I think but I that, don't know. I think that was the DJ is my recollection. Okay. I'm not sure. Somebody somewhere in this movie was pouring beer into a Pepto-Bismol It was really stupid because he it, took And the, then he was double fisting them. He took the Pepto-Bismol. He took some. a big chug off of it so that there's like... Two ounces, then he basically he was brass like two ounces of brass beer in a whole thing of Pepto-Bismol, which just doesn't seem like it accomplishes anything, um, and was just a thing you do for the movie to like tell you this character like is crazy is is just going through it. And then we get into the heist. They got to break into the radio station. So you probably know one of the very few notes that I have right down yeah. is that the heist starts with a parody of a hacking scene. Yeah. Because I love a hacking scene. And I honestly couldn't remember this. And so when they're like, give me your credit card and put it in your pin. That's how these locks work. I was like, is that how they get in? I can't handle this movie being that stupid. But of course, it is a parody of a hacking scene. And it doesn't work. And he loses his credit card. And it's a comedic moment. Um, And they try. Oh, they also try blowing soda in through the straw. To fry it. (laughs) Which also doesn't work. Work. and I forget why two of them go up on the roof. They're just looking for another entrance. Okay. And then the... Um, it's Adam Sandler stays down by the door. And while they're off doing that, someone... He's like... He's trying to do something with the door. Like shimmy something in it. But his face is right next to it. And somebody comes out, slams him in the face with the door. Um, and it's a very pretty woman. And, you know, immediately they have a connection. Um and, you know, while they're they're talking and she's bringing him a bag of ice, doesn't question why he's there or anything, you know? We don't ask those questions. Well, she just she feels bad that she hurt someone. Yeah. A handsome Adam Sandler right. someone. Yeah. 
Um, so they use that as an opportunity while the door is open and she's heading back in. They drop a bag down that catches it so that they can open the door and get in. But I thought it was a, a fun conclusion of the hacking thing. Yeah. Like, of course, these guys are not going to figure out anything. But if you hang around and people aren't paying attention, you might be able to just catch the door before it closes. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so they're just like wandering around the radios. I like how they spend so much time with like, we can't get caught breaking in. But as soon as they're in the radio station, they do not try to like hide or be discreet. They just kind of wander in the DJ What else booth. can they do? They immediately go to the uh, studio and ask the guy to play their tape. Yeah. And he doesn't play the tape, but he does put them on air for a minute. He just swings the microphone around, puts them on air. And just get some kind of talking for a minute. Yeah, and I, th- I think that speaks to, like, that character's, like, disillusionment. Like, he also thinks, like, the system is uh, broken. And he's like, let's hear what these losers have to say. Yeah. This will be at least something interesting. Right. Um, but then one of the uh, executives of the radio station hears what's going on. So they come into the room and tries to get it to stop. And at some point during all of this... The fake guns come out, but everyone thinks that they're real. So suddenly they're having to play the stick up situation, mm-hmm. um, which it's kind of hard to talk about this. Oh, also the band is the Lone Rangers, which is kind of teased about like, how can you be lone if there's multiple of mm-hmm. you? Um, so, you know, they're kind of just getting picked at. Mm-hmm. Um, but really this, this movie kind of escalates, but in like, it's very slowly in ways that's hard to talk about the progression of the movie. Cause it's not a whole lot is happening somehow. They, you know, like they are, even though this is all on the air, it takes someone else that, you know, they're rounding up everyone in the radio station cause they're holding them up they They want to play their demo tape. Otherwise they're going to shoot people, even though the guns are fake. Um, and then when they try to play the demo tape, it's like this whole series of things where, oh, you only have it on a tape. We don't have the tape decks anymore, only CDs or cassette tapes. So they have to go get an old reel-to-reel player, which they, this is how they're rounding up everyone because they have to go to different parts of the radio station, put a gun to him to put it together. And when they eventually go to play the demo tape, it wasn't set up correctly and it catches on fire right and spins and the, out. the tape machine repair scene is the first time we learn how this movie uses adam sandler to uh be the voice of a buffoon talking about race yeah which we didn't need at all <laughs> uh but it is just it is just interesting to remember what a movie thought you would say and then they said it yeah and it's and adam sandler was the character who did it yep to be fair i don't think he said anything problematic like he was trying to be sympathetic and be whatever but it very much was like a this conversation shouldn't be happening at all though is the thing right it they played it for laughs that adam sandler's character pip um like kind of cared he was like i'm aware of race stuff and like i recognize that like because there's a black man who has to deal with this and we're putting him in this position like i almost want to like ease some of that tension by addressing it and it doesn't work and probably the biggest sin of the movie is that they make the one black dude uh have lines like oh a black man can't take a break in this radio station um and that, like, about half of the things he says are about uh, 
perceived mistreatments because of race, um, which is, yeah. Yeah. Yep. We also have a black woman as a secretary who's playing like a video game most of the time. I think she's playing and a I game loved her. gear. A game gear? Yeah. And she's is that pretty... real or is that... Yeah, Sega Game Gear. It was the Sega oh. handheld uh, that came out like during the like Sega Genesis era. I didn't. I never had Sega anything, so oh, I'm, I'm cool. unaware of a lot of those. It was very cool. If you wanted to make like twelve dollars of batteries last for forty minutes, it was a very <laughs> cool way to do that. They were in there a lot longer than that, unless yeah. they had a lot of batteries that were popping in. Well, she probably had the AC adapter. I mean, she's a smart adult yeah. woman. Yeah, and she was in her desk. Yeah, but she she was great. She escaped a lot of that. But they were also like the very first person they let go later. Yeah as a hostage so it was very sad to see her go <laughs> um but so they're around eventually they get everyone rounded in this radio station so all together we've well, got the three be, i think before we get to that point they they try to bail out um because once they oh. couldn't get the record to, or the the tape to play they're like okay well this because they don't really want to hold a radio station hostage, hostage. they just want to play their thing and it kind of right. got out of hand it got away from them and they try to run away but by that time we have uh, michael our, richard's yeah. character has already called the cops and uh we get to see the adam sandler moment of the movie where they're like, maybe the cops aren't here for us. We should try to leave. And they send Pip out. And Pip's like, I hate you guys. And um, he uh, I did goes out and he takes a step forward. The cop takes a step forward. He takes a step to the right. The cop takes a step to the right, mirroring, mirroring. And uh, Pip's character realizes that the cop is mirroring him. And he's like, oh, I guess I'll just do an Adam Sandler goofy walk. And the cop just reaches for his gun. Then Pip runs back and is like, yeah. we can't just bail out. We've I enjoyed that scene. Yeah. It was pretty fun. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Because most of the time, uh, Adam Sandler's playing like dopey, but also grounded. He's like he, kind of the he's grounded He's a himbo. One. He plays a himbo in this. Yeah. And, uh, oh, Pool Cleaner's a classic himbo role. I didn't really think about that before. But he finally gets to do the like goofy physicality that we know Adam Sandler to do. I just made another connection. A little bit later in the movie, a um, a military or police person comes in whose wife cheated on him with a pool cleaner. Are we to believe that this. that was Pip? I bet it is. Um, I didn't even catch this part. Okay. Um, so I think that was the, but I bet, I bet. the sleeper sea story. Okay, so after all that happens, they have to recommit to they are now right. hostage takers. Right, so they can't get out. They're surrounded by all sides on police. And so the police... here's our cast. Can, can you choose just to get everyone straight? Yeah. The cast of characters that are in this radio station. Oh, yeah. Because we have our three main guys. We've got Adam Sandler, Steve Buscemi, Brendan. Fraser. <laughs> Those are our three hostage-ers. Yeah, those are the those hostage. We've got Ian the Shark, who is the uh, radio DJ, yes. hot shot. We don't, I don't know his name, but he's like the executive, like, like boss of the radio station. Yeah, he's station. like the manager of the radio station. That's Michael McKeon. Yeah. So his whole thing for this thing is that we also saw this before, the hostage, but he his secret thing was over the weekend, they're going to switch the radio station so it's not a rock station anymore. It's going to be an easy listening station and everyone's going to get fired, more or less. And we learned that from a conversation with Michael Richards, who at this point is now in the vents yes. or hiding out. He's, our, he's playing our diehard of this, where he's crawling around... 
trying a real physical the man comedy on the parody of Die Hard. Yeah. Um, additionally, we've got the technician um, who we met earlier, who worked on the reel to reel machine, and the secretary. the secretary who was playing the. I think it was a Game Gear. It might have been an Atari Lynx. Um, and then we also have someone who I thought dude? you might recognize from the Scream films. Uh oh, is he the surfer guy? David Arquette, who played Deputy Dewey in Scream. He yes. looks very different in Airheads. And then we have, oh, I'm glad I have the IMDb up because I didn't catch her name. We also have Susie, who was the blonde who opened the door, which is who they got in. We don't really give a role, but I'm assuming she's just like an assistant there. The equivalent of a Kayla to The Office. I get that impression as well. Um, she is played by Nina Samasco. I don't know if she's in anything. I bet she is, but I don't know it. Uh, but that is our cast of characters inside. Um, and then we get later introduced to... And I guess if we're doing it, let's talk about our characters outside. Yeah. So the uh, senior police officer is played by Ernie Hudson, who we may know as the guy from Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. And then the... Officer O'Malley. These names are never brought up in the movie. They literally they don't matter. <laughs> uh, the junior police officer is played by Chris Farley. Who we get mm-hmm. to see a lot of Chris Farley in this. I did guess Chris Farley. I wasn't positive. I was just assigning these different movie people. He's our Paul Blart. Um, so while we're talking about actors, uh, something I intended to mention earlier is this really seems like the last movie before Adam Sandler is starring in movies. Because the very next thing he does is Billy Madison. Yeah. And from there, it's mega hit, mega hit, mega hit. He's the funniest comedy yeah. leading man in the 90s. Which is, yeah. So th- this is the this is the movie leading before up. the movie. I kind of, if he's doing... Because this is that type of comedy that he gets, you know, kind of known for later... I think it's a little more successful for him not to be the lead. It's more of, you know, a side character where you were getting a bunch of other stuff happening too because it's a little too much on its own. So I do kind of think it's more successful. The classic Adam Chandler stick of like, I'm doing funky stuff. I'm doing my voices. And I think when he doesn't have to carry as much, he can lean more into the goofball stuff. Yeah. Um, whereas if he has to have a lot of dialogue and he doesn't have any responsibilities in this movie at all, he just has to be there. He was largely comic relief. Yeah. Um, which, which I think worked. Yeah, I agree. Like for, I enjoyed his performance a lot in this movie, even if the movie as a whole was whatever. Um, but everyone is rounded out. And so now we get everything moving, connecting together. So the police call the radio station and Ian, the shark answers the phone. Um, the hostages refuse to answer the phone at first. Um, so they're doing all communication through there, but they police convince them to let them know that they're cooperating to let a hostage go and they'll meet their demands. So they let the secretary who the gamer secretary go and their demand is that they need to find the other copy of the demo tape to play because that's what their end goal is. They just want to play their demo tape on the air. So since theirs got eaten up, there's only one other copy. And we got a scene earlier where Kayla, the ex-girlfriend, was listening to it in her car. And then she realized what it was and threw it out the window in disgust. Literally like a, oh! 
She has a lot of, she makes good noises. Hmm. Um, so they, so the cops, which is part of what I was alluding to earlier, agree to somehow go find this, de- let's not even find the demo tape. They, they agreed to go find Kayla, even though they don't know where she is. Uh, they send Chris Farley out to go track her down. Mm-hmm. He lists some places where she might be. With just a her. photo of her from behind in a bikini. Correct. Yeah. Yep, so the, the, that's what the cops are going to do with their time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we get scenes of Chris Farley going to the biker bar and um, kind of like getting Clearly in trouble. Um, and then the SWAT team shows up right. to show conflict with the police, which really was never a conflict. They just didn't work together. It didn't really matter to our guys on the inside whether they were there or not. Um, but the thing that happens with the SWAT team is that hemorrhoid man is gets he's crawling around, he's getting on phones and is working with them. And the really only thing that they do is give him a real life gun at some point, which is um, a Chekhov's gun later. <laughs> um, other than that, the SWAT team doesn't do much. Is he the one that you said that his, the yes. pool cleaner? Okay. He's the one who part of his motivation for being upset is that uh, his wife cheated on him with the pool cleaner. It's, it's, yeah. That's my memory. Yeah. So now we're in full hostage wing, so they're killing time while the police are trying to track down Kayla. So they decide, well, we've got everyone in here. Let's start doing the radio station how we want to play on the radio. Right. So they start digging through the music. They're getting out the carts. Everyone's kind of having fun. They're giving away uh, concert tickets. Yeah. Uh, people calling in. They're starting to, like, people are, like, uh, starting to, like, support them and mm-hmm. get invested in the story. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think somebody calls in. To, some people aren't on board. To, some people calling in and making fun of them. I think we get a Beavis and Butthead impersonation. We don't get a Beavis and Butthead impersonation. We get Mike Judge doing Beavis and Butthead calling in. Is that really him? That's really okay. him. Absolutely. Okay. I don't know people and what they do. But I can recognize Beavis and Butthead when I hear it. That someone's trying to do it for real or for fake. Um, also, at some point during this, Steve Buscemi puts on a Confederacy hat. What? You didn't see, catch this one? No, like it was when they they, they were pulling out all like the like oh we've got station T shirts. Look at all this merch, and I think just with all the random clothing that was around, he has like a, like a little like the rebel flag Confederate thing, and he puts on the baseball hmm. cap that had it. He doesn't wear it for the rest of the movie, but there's a scene where he's like, ha ha, look at me, I'm being a rebel. I think that was the implication. Sure. Not aged well. Well, it never was good, but especially didn't age. Are we in L.A. in this story? I have no clue where we are. I would yeah, assume I, I assumed that we were in L.A. We're not in the South. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, I like this too. So they're, they're going through all the merch. They're, you know, they're just going through all the stuff that the radio station has. And we get a scene with Adam Sandler and the blonde girl who opened the door because there's kind of been this tension between them. And he's got on one of the radio station t-shirt swag shirts and she's cutting off the sleeves for him while he sits there. Um, and, you know, they're just making like, you know, they're flirting while they're doing it. But I thought it was a very funny setup. He was like, oh, thanks for cutting off the sleeves. 
it made me laugh just the reality of yeah. a punk thing but and the reality of cutting sleeves off a shirt is very not you know it's a little dorky uh brendan fraser or no 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 uh steve buscemi i think explains to one of the hostages that women just love pip yeah that he there's something about him and uh like they just find him and that it's kind of like a shrug your shoulders what are you gonna do if there's if there's a cool babe around she's gonna just fall for pip and people that's just the way it works i think it's because he's (laughs) non-threatening Um, and of course, as we as we go along, there's again, this is a pretty slow paced movie. I don't know if you feel the same way, but it's not a whole lot of, is happening. Or at least, you know, there's not these noticeable scenes of whatever. But as the movie goes on, we get these random scenes where we see the demo tape out on the streets mm-hmm. and stuff is happening to it. It's like, you know, a car drives by in a big puddle and it gets water on it. At some and point, they're playing some cool music. Fashion. Oh yeah. The last thing that has to happen, the final indignity, is that a dog lifts its leg. On oh, it. I was going to say something before that even happened because when they're all playing the cool music, everyone's like, "Whoa, we love this song!" Oh, and the, you never played these songs, and we get the car that's like jumping the on it. The lowrider is the hydraulics bouncing up. on it. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. It's very of the moment. But yeah, the last thing we do eventually before it's retrieved is the dog is pissing on it. Um, but we're still mid heist. This tape hasn't been found. Kayla hasn't been found yet. But this is all happening simultaneously. At this point in the radio station, I really should have saved this. Uh, the word comes out about the station is getting rebranded and people are going to lose their jobs. So now there's like an energy shift of whether I think, you know, and not to spoil towards the end, people are going to be considering them some the hostages. Maybe they're going on the side of uh, the Lone Rangers but I feel like this is where that energy shift happens of whose side are you really on? Right. And eventually everyone crosses over. Um, but this is where Ian the shark is now becoming disillusioned with life. He's like, my job might be done. Like, what am I really doing? If I lose my job, you know, like, what, sh- what are re- reassessing his values, maybe. Right. Um, now we can talk about the cop ghost, the metal shore, uh, Chris Farley ghost to whatever. I, I don't, we didn't write down the name of it. But it is just the metal place. The bands are playing. The, maybe it is a biker bar. Um, the Strip maybe is what it was called. I think the Strip is the um, like street Area. where a lot of like clubs and bars okay. and entertainment is. And he finds... Uh, a, I think he was given the description that she's like wearing something black and tight. Oh, yeah. And they show the and exterior blonde. of the bar where there's like... 12 women who match that description he's like well i guess this is what i've got to do yeah and he goes in there yeah um so he's wandering around he's clearly out of place you know a cop and like a, a metal big, bar goofy looking cop a very a goofy bar. looking car in a metal bar is not a great match for him so you know people are kind of jostling him and eventually he sits at the bar defeated and then realize the woman sitting next to him is kayla he found her um, but she's kind of done at this point because I think she's been hearing a little bit to the radio. She's like, what is going on? So he tries to convince her that he needs to come with her because she needs he needs to get the tape from her. But she's not having it. Yeah, and it's not, it almost doesn't feel like, it's not like just like, you're not taking me anywhere. It's like, I'm not going to help my ex. Yeah. Yeah. So 
he, so she's trying to get away, but he keeps being like, no, no, please help. And then some other bikers see that, you know, he's giving her a hard time. So then when she steps away, he tries to pursue, um, but they get in his way to follow. And then uh, they're picking on him and they're like, well, what are you going to do about it? Cop? Oh. And then he yanks out one of their nipple rings. Horrifying. No. <laughs> and then even though, so just, I, there's nothing to say about it. Just awful. I can't, what do you, what do you do after that? I don't know what a person would have, what you do. Do you I, reattach I, the nipple? I, I think they, I think we're to assume that it was a way to shift the, the power balance between a cop alone against a bunch of people. Yeah. Um, where no permanent damage was done because yeah. this is a pretty light-hearted movie that turns away from the darkness but he is just holding the nipple ring at the end um but then kayla i don't even i don't know what persuaded her but she went and found the demo tape i don't know what switched in her head if she was just like oh no i, I do like nothing really like no one talked to her so maybe she just is so flippant like everything else she's like no maybe i do love i have to still. assume at some point she must accept that there's a bunch of people being held hostage. Yeah. And she has some sort of human obligation to try and get it to right. resolve without violence. So she remembers the exact place where she threw out the cassette tape because she finds it with ease. It's exactly where she threw out of her car. And then we cut back to the radio station and they come up with a great scheme of... They're creating another list of demands from the police, but this time it's a bunch of random stuff, like a giant baby bottle. Um, I can't think of any other examples. A football helmet full of cottage cheese. Nude photos of B. Arthur. Oh, yeah. Um... The, the goal, though, is to create... is I think it's both to, to get just some random stuff that they want. Because um, they also as... asked for stuff they wanted. Like oh, yeah, like a guitar like with a the dragon. PRS guitar with the dragon inlay and some fancy bass that I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is that should they get arrested when they go to court eventually later when all said is done, they can use us to plead insanity of like, clearly we weren't of sound mind because look at our list of demands. Right. Um, which is, I, I enjoyed, I don't know. I thought it was a fun. It's a, it's a good way to get some props on, right. on set. I like that they're thinking ahead of like, eventually something's going to have to happen to them at the end of this. You know, there's, it's a, it's a little bit grounded in reality at some points. <laughs> um, but then the power goes out. And I think at this point, we also have the uh, radio station boss tied up in a chair. Mm -hmm. for the, probably for the rest of the movie, he's tied up, except for the very end. Mm -hmm. um, and he's just always in these situations that kind of put him in a room. And then he's trying to scoot over in the swivel chair and like get the door open with, his hand, with the, what little hand he has or his head. And then as soon as he gets out, they come out and they put him in a new place. And then he does the whole thing over again. But for a while, they go and just shove him in a closet. And I don't know if you if you caught this. It made me laugh. Um, as the power goes out, they shove him in a closet. And then he just says, you can't do this to me. My aunt was buried alive. <laughs> oh, I do remember that throwaway line. Yeah. I um, liked it because he's just in a dark, cramped space. Yeah, that's, that's horrifying. <laughs> yep. That's what he yeah. said. Yep. 
Oh, and so one of the demands they made was they wanted a record deal from mm-hmm. a record company, which when it was, because they were doing this on the phone, I think at first, they were reading them off and then it was thrown mm-hmm. off at the end. And then they kind of had to fight amongst themselves of like, well, we can't just get a record deal like that. Like we need to earn it ourselves. Well, the very first offer for a record deal that they get is fake uh, from the actors, Harold Ramis. Right. So that's where we're at right now. So the cops present them a record you know, some executive to come sign the contract, um, but they're suspicious. So they ask him some questions to validate who he is. They, the rock and roll shibboleths. Yeah. So they ask him, uh, who were you on the side of the Van Halen when they split up? Mm-hmm. And uh, whatever he answered wasn't a good answer because right? he's on the side of Van Halen. I don't really know what that's about. I don't know if that was like a funny moment for you. I think the concept of them doing this is I funny. I think Van Hale is a little bit before my time. Yeah. So, like, that didn't, like, make me laugh of whatever. And then they ask a follow And he's like, oh, give me another shot. Give me another shot. Um, so they give him another one and something they about ask, is Russ, Who would win in a fight between Lemmy, the singer from Motorhead, and God? Right. And he says, Lemmy. And they say, trick question. Lemmy is God. Yeah. So clearly the guy's a cop. He's not rock and roll because he didn't no. know that Lemmy actually is God. No. So he gets thrown out. They can't pull one over on them. Um, and then this is where I really realized the cops are completely... So if you haven't realized already, cops are so useless. Because this is where it starts getting really loosey-goosey. Where there, it's like it's one thing where it's like one of them, maybe like just Brendan would go out and talk to the cops while the other two were inside with the guns. But at this point, it's like Steve Buscemi's coming out too. He's in the crowd. He's, you know, getting whatever. And it's like, God, it'd be so easy for the cops to just grab them both. And then there's only one guy in there. I and think then the, the hot, implication you know, is that they're... And I agree. It absolutely looks absurd. But the only way that we can kind of write it in our minds is that the cops believe... If they were to nab two of those guys, then yeah, the all would start the hostages die. I do agree. It's just such like a suspension of disbelief of like they really couldn't handle that situation in any other way. I'm not pro cop, but it feels like they could have handled this the way that they were just loosey goosey out there, just having fun. They're jumping up, they're stirring the crowd up. You know, like there's at this point too. There's been a a parking lot concert happening. Um, at the at the radio station. Yeah, they also have no ability to control the crowd no. either. They can't even clear the crowd. No. So there's a lot going on in this one spot, and the both and the SWAT team isn't doing much either. Well, the SWAT team is being held, but they're like, as soon as we get the word that we're going to storm in and kill everybody, that's oh, we're just we're, oh, our chops are smacking yeah. for it. And at some point during this, I think I said it earlier, but they were able to hand off a gun to the uh, hemorrhoids man in the vents. I'm sorry. I don't know his name. <laughs> yeah, so they had him climb up to the roof and they handed in because I, I guess there was some sort of like standing order were to believe that they couldn't go in. But they could give they... stuff to him. Also, um, uh, Michael Richards' character says that he was an accountant in the Merchant Marines. Um, but there's some sort of communication failure, and the SWAT team guy hears that he was a Marine. Mm. Um, and so he this. believes that he has like a brother in arms on the inside, when in reality he has someone totally bumbling. Yeah. 
And it's we, not a parody, but it's just like a like a. I feel like it's a, yeah. light. It's well, light. so not not only do we see a lot of Die Hard esque uh, crawling around and talking secretly to the cops, uh, but thank you Wikipedia, um, the radio station is the same building that was shot as Nakatomi Tower in Die Hard. Oh wow! So it was, I think it was a very intentional. Um, like we're 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 doing this fun trivia i don't even know how (laughs) this is the weirdest twist of the movie because the swat team guy was doing some research on everyone like all the um our our lone rangers and one of the things that comes out was that chaz isn't his real name his real name is chester and he was a geek now is chaz even a cool name isn't Chaz like a yacht club name? I feel like bef- now it would be maybe back then, maybe not so much before it got, you know, it's like if your name was Karen before 2018. I guess. I mean, know? Chester's worse than Chaz because yeah. of the rhyming. I was going to say like Cheetos. Oh, well, that's a cool cat. What that scene is supposed to do for us is to say that you might think that you're being gatekeeped from being punk rock but actually we're all punk rock as long as you stand for being genuine and not bowing to authority yeah so there's a scene where everybody like yells out like i play dungeons and dragons too yeah which that was kind of funny because of you know that's a that's a trope i forget that like yeah but there's some mm-hmm. name for it, I bet. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the specific one, it's very fun of just like, I'm good at math too. <laughs> like this is very innocuous things of, yeah, anyone can do anything. But yeah, it is like a nice subversive of like this punk movement, but everyone still has their stuff that makes them not punk in a way. Yep. And it's really your attitude that matters and not the other stuff. Yeah, it's, it's basically it's, like it's a My Little Pony message yeah. in mm-hmm. the end. Yeah. Um, and at this point, Chaz and Kayla kiss and make up. The cops have met most of their weird demands because we get the pile of stuff. We see the giant baby bottle. We get to stuff. see uh, Chris Farley filling the football helmet with cottage cheese. Yeah. yeah. Um, but for some reason, we're still not over yet because, oh, because they haven't played the tape on the, well, ra- on the area. Kayla, um, in a fit of rage... Uh, smashes the glass of the control studio and oh, yeah. that she puts somehow shorts out the um, control board. Um, so that's how they've received the demands. They've gotten the tape, but they still can't complete their quests. Mm-hmm. Yes, have no way to air now the cassette tape. Even if they could get it to play, they couldn't because there's nothing to play it on because it's been beaten to hell. And, and I think it's around this time that they bring in the real record company exec that was not yet not yet because here's what happens what happens next is the in the chaos of all this one of the guns breaks and the hot sauce spills out and some of the hostages realize oh shit it's not real so they just gun for it outside and that's where we lose david arquette and that's mm-hmm. um and we also the surfer dude leaves as well so those are the two characters that run off everyone else is kind of they're just there at this point. Boss also gets sauced in the eye. He's still tied up in a chair. He's hanging around. Mm-hmm. Um, but then 
So for a minute, the, the it's, it's all being yelled like they have fake guns. It's not real. There's no, you know, they don't have any real weapons. But then the hemorrhoid man in the vents comes out to, because he thinks that he still doesn't realize that those were fake guns. He's been catching just glimpses of stuff. So he thinks the situation's even worse than it is. So this is the point where he thinks he should come out, sticks his real gun out, but then drops it. It fires off everywhere. And now the police are back to thinking, no, there's a real gun in there. And now they're angry. We have to meet their last, like whatever demands they have left. That's where we now send in the real record executive. And we see um, the DJ uh, recovers the gun. But in the final defiance against the easy listening station coming for his job, instead of using it to escape or to free the hostages, he hands it back to Chaz. Yep. Yep. So I think anyone who's basically in that situation, minus the guy tied in the chair at this point, is on their side. You know, either you're in love and you're having sex with Adam Sandler, or you're re-associating your values as a radio DJ. Sure. I think that's when I lost track of where Michael Richards ends up. Remind me who Michael Richards is again? Well, I've been avoiding saying it, but he's Hemorrhoid Man. Hemorrhoid Man. Oh, yeah. He kind of drops the gun and then we maybe don't he, see maybe him he again. Maybe he scurries back into the tubes. Yeah, maybe just goes hides. But he doesn't seem like he joins the hostages and we don't really see anything else for him. No, good kinda point. It seems like his part is done. I forgot about that. Yeah. We don't see much of him after that. I don't know what happens to him. Because yeah. he didn't even... It was just the gun fell out of the vent. He didn't. Just the gun. Right. Good, good catch. I don't know. Then they send in the real record. It's like, who is the one we saw in the very opening of the movie? The guy who it's wouldn't It's Judd Nelson with a... Is it a soul patch? I think so. With a soul patch and maybe a ponytail. Mm-hmm. Um, and he comes in and the uh, radio station manager offers to negotiate the contract for them. Um, and on advice of the DJ, um, they... They agree to give him 5% to negotiate the contract for them. Mm-hmm. All the while still trying to figure out how to play their song for them. They actually negotiate a contract and come back. But once uh, Chaz realizes that they were going to get the record contract without having actually played Pretty the tape, music. which was what they were about, he realizes that it's not genuine and it's not rock and roll. Um, and he's going to reject it. Because right. actually, it wasn't just that they, they wanted a record deal. They, they, wanted, they wanted to, to do it. it the right way. And I think that's where somehow they decide that they're going to do a... Oh, can I... There's a couple of stuff that happens before we get to that. Because there's mm-hmm. so much nonsense that happens. Like, again, this is very drawn out scenes. So sometimes little stuff happens in between because that somehow is taking 20 minutes. But we're cutting to stuff in between. Um, so while they're doing contract negotiations and having punk crises of whatever it means to have a record contract or not, um, the surfer guy comes running back up to the station because he wants to become a hostage again. They tell him to fuck off. Um, and then also at some point, um, I think while Brendan is contemplating, he gets like a burrito from the uh, thing and he uses the hot sauce gun on it and Josh I would buy you a hot sauce gun thank you yeah and now and now we're back up to speed the final thing that kind of convinces them to even though they'd already signed the deal but then realized they stick with it because the 
record label tells them, you guys are in some hot waters right now, and we're a huge record label who has good lawyers. Right. And people with good lawyers don't go to jail. And that kind of was the last little persuasive push they need to be like, okay, this isn't how we wanted it, but this is how we're going to do it. So they go out, and this is, do you want to take over? Because I think I cut you off for this. Sure. Well, I was I was really remembering, oh, they, they do take the record contract mm-hmm. after wiping their rear with it oh yeah he which is very dramatic it's very thank goodness for paperless offices (laughs) because never again will someone offer me something and i will have the option to groom myself with it in a very dismissive way the way uh brendan fraser did in that movie can i say one thing about that though clean butt no smears on the paper you know, I, I I have to believe in the novelization of this. It would have been filthy. They just couldn't. Oh, show you it say that like you like you would have liked. That. Oh yeah, that's what I'm into. <laughs> I want them to get rid of paperless office because I want to wipe my butt with paper. That's, un, that's painful. <laughs> and then we get the next coolest scene, which is uh, a lone helicopter somehow. Bringing in an entire that was concert very stage. optimistic on the <laughs> payload of. A, I mean, that must have been an American helicopter because it could haul. And I think that this. I, I don't know if I'm just making too many leaps. I think that this is the "Let It Be" trope, where the yeah. Beatles played on the roof. Yeah, did they of, come put it on the roof? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, because they jumped very high at the end. And then, I mean, there's a lot of like classic like rock, rock. story things because. Because then, you know, it looks great. The audience is there. Um, the record exec is happy. They're finally going to get to play their song. But they find out that actually they're being asked to lip sync the least rock and roll thing mm-hmm. that you can do. Which at this point in the game is so crazy of how many times we've put off them performing in some way capacity letting their song be heard as well as like whatever just crazy to me because <laughs> yeah this is the last thing of because they're what they're making a music video so they have all the camera people there and they're like well you can't be really playing because otherwise the music video won't look good and she was like do that later you've got a hostage situation going on at this point in the game just let them play it but they won't back down they're like, you have to do this or not. And so Brendan Fraser Fraser goes out there and it looks like he's going to do it. And then he puts his hands up when the guitar goes up, showing that, no, he's not the one playing. There's a tape playing it. Mm-hmm. And they get so pissed, so mad. Uh, but the crowd is loving it. They love the song and they love whatever. They don't know what's happening, but they're loving it. They think there's something going on. But I will say, even before all this, they're still sellouts. Even though if they're not playing, they're not doing the limp sync thing. In my eyes, at this point, they're sellouts. They hadn't really earned that record deal. Well, I think in their minds, they always deserve the record deal. Yeah. They just needed to get perception on their side. So after the concert where they start breaking all their amps and stuff, do they crowd surf out? They do. They go crowd surfing, which is jumping from the roof. Which is, yeah, like thing. super far. Yeah. Because, like, normally, but it if you works crowd out. surf, you're basically like 
falling into people's yeah. hands, but they like fall a story. Yeah. Which does that even work? It did in the movie because we if I've all three hands of them, you jump from a story down. You're, you're gonna, gonna like, going down. Bust my wrists. No, yeah. I'm not going to like it. <laughs> but all three of them managed to do it because they're all crowding next to each other to surfing yeah, on great. their backs. They're living the dream. Also, this point, and I guess maybe I thought the cassette tape was also irrecoverable. So I'm like, where did they get this version of the song that they're playing? But maybe they did somehow salvage it. I think they re-spooled the cassette tape, but they couldn't play it at the radio, radio station, station because the glass shorted out the control board. But once they brought in the stage, there was a different audio system for them to play the tape through. Which feels crazy. There was just so many things where it's like there had to been another solution. I get that it's a movie. We're suspending their disbelief. But it is, again, insane how these demands are met. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? There seems like there could have been other easier things to achieve what they wanted to do. Um, but the crowd is just hearing. So even though they aren't playing, the crowd is just hearing the taped version. And they really like it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of where that scene is there before we wrap up. Because the next thing we see is they're in prison. And it's like Johnny Cash. And it's they're playing inside the prison. And they're having a concert. Now, Johnny Cash wasn't a prisoner. What? I'm just, I'm just. No, he was, wasn't he? He uh, really did go to Johnny jail. Johnny Cash played for prisoners. I thought he really went to jail and played while he was in jail. But he was not a prisoner. So there's an article, Johnny Cash prison. Did Johnny Cash ever go to prison? Truth behind man in black. Um, outlaw image was vital part of his appeal. He performed in prisons for free, famously in Folsom prison. And it's been assumed he was an outlaw, but did he ever go to prison? And especially there's like mug shots of him. Um, he he only ever stayed overnight in holding cells. Never served a prison sentence. There you but go. he has some lyrics where he acts as if he does. Right. Okay. Yeah, like like rappers. Okay. They can talk about crimes and not necessarily have, you know, served time for them. Johnny but, Cash is like a rapper. Well, this is now less cool, but I guess only in the context of Airheads, not Johnny Cash. Um, I would love like the idea of like a prison venue for like music. Either one for outside people get in, or just like the idea, like within the prison, it's like, oh, you think you can get into the concert venue tonight? Oh, good luck getting in there. Um, and then an extension of that is a prison battle of the bands. Like I just like the idea of everything that happened outside in the real world, but now it's in prison on these like it's high stakes to them. Like, whoa, you won battle of the bands in prison. You're really going to go somewhere once you get out of here. Like the electric forest of prisons. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's fun. I like the idea of like a band forming in prison and being like, we really got to get somewhere with this. I don't know. And then we get some stuff where so they're they're having a great concert. Someone's, oh, it's their um, record label guy who they signed the deal. He's Mm -hmm. getting calls asking when they're going to get out of jail. And he says... Six months, but really three months if they're on good behavior, which is even six months is crazy low for all that they did. But really, it's three months. Really, they only did three months. I think what we're to believe is that, A, the charges against them don't include the guns somehow. Even though in the end, they actually do get a gun, which is a big jump in crimes. As I imagine them, I'm in no way knowing anything about the law. The other thing I'm to believe is that by the end of the whole affair, none of the witnesses 
wanted to Testify. go against them. That's that's the only way I can make it make sense. It's still, again, there's a lot of suspension of disbelief. Sure, or that they'd all get identical terms right. and, you know, yeah. Right. But that's how it is. He only served three months in prison for holding a bunch of people hostage. Then I thought, you know, at the end, what if after all of said and done and they got their concert and everything, what if the band just sucked? Like, what if they didn't deserve that record deal? I mean, I don't think that would have been funny. Like, it would have been funny, but I think it would have been a sad conclusion to the movie. I guess that's, it's interesting. If they didn't rock, and if they weren't rock and roll, and if they didn't really deserve that position, then it's, they're not characters we want to see. This whole thing pins on they really are the real deal rock and rollers who the you know the mistakes of the system, the business of rock and roll are like misserving that put them in the position to go so far that they're not like being f- fame hungry. They're like just so pure of rock spirit that they have to do these crazy things. Which, now that we're wrapping up, um, I think we can dive into that conversation of, are they rock and roll or not? Is this a lifestyle? don't forget I have a... Yes, thank you. Yep. Um, um, because, you know, this is very much in a way, the, the, the way that they dress, the way that they act, in my mind, uh, sure, I bet that's like still very 80s, 90s. But in a certain degree, it's very much like a fantasy. If not many people truly lived that life in the way that they portrayed it. Well, I think they were a band and they wanted to be touring musicians yeah. and they wanted to work in the rock and roll milieu. Mm-hmm. I don't really know what that word means. It's because maybe just some what it, of what it means to be a true rock and roller these days, some attitudes may have shifted because for them, the end goal was always, always from day one, the minute we see them on screen, it's get a record deal. Which I would almost make the argument, not that record deals mean that whatever, but now there's kind of an association like, well, if you were a true punk rocker, you wouldn't even go apart with the system. Like you, you'd be on an independent label. You'd be doing your own thing without the man. I think that's an attitude shift since indie this movie has come out. wasn't really a thing yet. Yeah. Um, and I think the idea is that sure you have to compromise to capitalize on your art but if you fail to capitalize on your art then you basically have to work a job where you're firmly under someone else's heel Hmm. so although signing that record contract is a big compromise you don't have someone saying work starts at 8 a.m not 805 talk to me in my office after you do this grueling demeaning work so and and you know it was the romantic idea of we're going to get a record contract we're going to be famous people are going to love our music and we'll travel the country you know just being rock gods Mm -hmm. so is it all bs sure is their vision of it more bs than people who are committed to the idea of playing electric guitars in smoky clubs no yeah and to your point too i think at some point uh chaz makes a comment something along the lines of like 
yeah, I could, if I really wanted to, I could make a one-hit wonder, make a ton of money off of that, do nothing for my life. But what I really want to do is keep making music over and over and give my message to the people, which my next thought was, it was called out in the movie of many times you're like, okay, you say you have a message. Everyone's eyes and ears are on you right now. What's your message? And he's just like, well, it's to rock and roll. And it's... I feel it's a little lackluster because even at the end, we never really get a true answer. It's but just who to are rock the, and roll. Who are the rock gods? Who are the gods of rock? What were their messages? For the most part, they were like, love is all we have and never give up and keep on believing. Uh, you have your outliers, your like very political groups like you know Rage Against the Machine or something who might have really wanted to change the culture but for the most part the messages of rock and roll music are like those that are anthemic and are the ones that are uh broadcast you know on into car radios and stuff are not very deep well i think that's what they're saying at some point in the movie is because they're critiquing the radio dj of like you have all this great music back here why don't you ever play it and at first he's like well, it's the boss. And then he's like, well, I guess, no, it's actually me. I just do the classics, too. Like, that's what I just listen to in my own time. Um, so I feel like, well, that's going back to the disillusion. But it's one of those things of, yeah, it's not like the man's going to be playing those types of messages, though, either. So they are, in some way, they are getting suppressed, you know? Because they aren't, if you want a certain message like that, yeah, the system's not going to play something like that. I don't think the movie really sets, I think... The movie sets us up to believe that these three people are genuine in spirit, but that they are not real activists of politics or political or activists or that they really have something to teach us. Um, It's hard not to think of like Bill and Ted, like Bill and Ted is like two white dudes who are going to literally save the world through their rock music. And their message is... Be excellent to one another. Okay. That's yeah. that's a, all you can get most of the time. You know, if it were if it were a novel, it wouldn't fit on a bumper sticker. No, I'll accept that. It just it feels uh, as a point for the movie. Is it felt lame? Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, these guys are kind of lame. Yeah, they are lame. They're like, Chester. I'll wear a leather jacket and ride a motorcycle because I'm anti-establishment. Yeah. It's like, okay, but that's also kind of like what everybody expects you to you do. do. Yeah. You also know that, like, even after all this, even though they are portrayed as, like, they're huge now and everyone likes them, there for sure was at least a small minority of people that hated them and think they were posers for the way they went about all oh, of this. absolutely. I think Kaylee even calls them a poser. Yeah. Um, and you pretty much, the only music that they could play to justify them being there was to not let their music be played. I think it's very intentional that you don't hear them until the very last scene of the movie because if you heard more than like, drums and then the bass comes in and then it stops, which is what we get, um, you'd probably be sitting there thinking like... This isn't that good. This is like, I wouldn't buy this record. Yeah. <laughs> Why would they do all this stuff? Like, it's not even as good as like the bands that I like yeah. that are on the record labels. Yeah. And, or like the cool bands in my neighborhood. Which I think is the other point. It's like they have a really uphill thing. So even though they have, you know, all the stuff... 
happened to them. Most people were on their side. It still feels like once it's time to listen to the music and people have to buy records, it's that's a tough uphill battle because now it is your music being scrutinized probably to a higher degree than if you had it before. Because now it's like these are the guys that held up a radio station to get this put out there. Josh, at this point, I'd like to ask you, where does this movie fall on the Clydesdale scale for you? Reminded me Clydesdale scale. Um, how many Clydesdales does it take to rip your face off? Um, probably just one, right? Faces aren't that tightly. Okay, yeah, one Clydesdale. I'd agree to that. One Clydesdale. That was something that was set. I don't even know where that happened. Somewhere. Oh, it was it was the surfer guy when they were getting all of them together, he was on the phone with someone or on the air and he was asking someone, where does this fall on the Clydesdale scale for you? And then the guy asked him to clarify. He's like, you know, the Clydesdale scale, how many Clydesdales does it take to rip your face off? I and then totally he gets yanked. this. Don't remember that at all. I thought it was so absurd. I had to write it down. Very absurd, yeah. <laughs> that probably came from a punch-up session. Just I, like the, the I, my aunt was buried alive. Life. Feels like yeah. it came from a punch-up session. Do you know what? After last month's with Mr. Deeds with Nick, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that came out was that I think I realized I have to actually pause the movie when I take notes. Because if I try, I think I'm not taking that long to quick jot something down, but it turns out I miss a ton of stuff. Sure. So this time I was actively, as soon as I wanted to write something down, pause it. And I think I caught a lot more of these small moments. And I still feel like I missed some, I guess, but... Sure. I did feel like I took more in, so would recommend. I guess as a whole, do you agree that this was like, this was kind of a slow-paced movie, nothing really happened. It just was like a very straightforward, they held up a radio station for 90 minutes. I didn't feel like it was slow. I felt like it was slow. I felt like it was a little bottle episode-y. Like most of the action takes place in like one of a couple of rooms in a single building. And we, with some cutaways to external stuff, um, but I actually thought that was kind of interesting, okay. and I liked it. Okay, it definitely couldn't have gone on any longer. Like this, I think was like how long maybe was it? Some, like an hour forty? It was, it was ninety minutes, right yeah, about. That's. Right I mean, I think that's how long a movie most needs comedies to be. Yeah. should be. Maybe even a little less. Yeah, I wouldn't have had my feelings hurt if ten minutes were cut from this. That's but I feel I that way about a lot, a lot of, of things. Movies. Yeah, yeah. And I understand there's a different push to make things a little bit longer. Cause yeah, if this movie came out today, it would be two hours long. He also was like less obtuse, rude, in some of his like later roles of that character trope that he does. You know, he's more the of a pip jerk. character doesn't get angry at people. No, the pip character is largely passive and is largely. At the same time, the voice of reason. He's sympathetic, too, to the hostages a lot of the times. He's trying to be like, I'm so sorry we're doing this to you. Aren't we the jerks? If if they had listened to Pip, none of this would have ever happened. Yeah. Yeah, because Pip didn't want to do any of it from, from the... He did not want to break in. Right. I really appreciated this opportunity to go back and rewatch a movie that I remember from when I was young that I thought was super cool which is only kind of cool. And that I thought was really funny, which is only a little funny to see where Adam Sandler was 
before he started starring in films, which I kind of knew, but I didn't know it was literally the movie right before Billy Madison. So that was um, very interesting. Because this is supposed to be an Adam Sandler-focused podcast. Mm -hmm. So let's just talk about just Adam Sandler for a bit. Mm -hmm. So even outside of just the scope of this movie, but after now watching Airheads, and you've seen Click a Bunch, and you, oh, I know you've also seen Pixels lately mm -hmm. too. So as you're also expanding your Adam Sandler palette, how does this place like in the seeing the progression like this is in earlier days and now knowing what comes after like just do you have any general thoughts of i guess just the progression or seeing other iterations of the same trope that he does over and over um so this question is basically what do i think about adam sandler yeah I have a lot of respect for the movies that he makes, which I think largely are not that interesting for me. But um, I think he makes a lot of broad comedies that I would rather watch over the broad comedies that they compete with. Also, I have great memories of him in the early days, um, in the uh, where he was kind of the younger, goofy. He like he had like comedy albums and. The animated uh, Eight Crazy Nights and he was Opera Man and like all those things I, I really did love back in the day. And when he steps into a more kind of like arty, dramatic role, like I'm sure you're going to spend plenty of time talking about with uh, Uncut Gems and Punch Drunk Love. I mean, I also love those movies. So he puts out a lot of stuff that I could be just fine missing the respectful tip of the hat to his ability to produce them yeah thank you josh is there any plugs you would like to, like is there anything you would like to plug uh i guess, I guess my plug would be that if you're listening to this how how did that happen are you are you my friend are you josie's friend uh if so hey thanks for being a friend you didn't have to do that that's nice. Way to go. Aw. Yeah, especially at this point in the podcast, if yeah. you're this far in. So my plug is for being a thoughtful friend with your time. Uh, lastly, be excellent to one another. Thank you, Josh. It was very thoughtful. You're very welcome. That concludes this episode of Into the Sandbox. Josh, thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to see be on another podcast with you again in november when we return to click and for everyone else that's still here join us next month in april where we will have drew on and we will watch hubie halloween bye bye <laughs> Sloppy Joe, sloppy, sloppy Joe.